Job 42, verses 7 to 17. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildite the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And then came to him all his brothers and sisters, and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah. And the name of the third, Karen Hapak, and in all the land were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived for 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations, and Job died an old man and full of days. This is the word of God. When you get the call from Helen that you're on the reading list, you just pray that you don't have Eliphaz the Temanite in your reading. The Mags family uh, are expecting and they are hoping to call their little girl Emma. I think they've missed a trick. They could have gone with Karen Hapuk. <laughs> Haley, thank you so much for that reading. Uh, folks, won't you join me in prayer before we come to God's word? Father, as always, uh, we don't want to be presumptuous. We know that every um, opportunity to hear you speak is uh, a gift given freely by your grace, and it only happens in the power of your Spirit. So please reveal yourself to us this morning through your Son and by the Spirit. Amen. What do you expect from life? No small talk this morning. We're jumping straight into the deep end. What do you hope for and expect will be the shape of your life? If we were to graph it, what shape would the graph take? I think our expectations generally look a little bit like this. Life is going to be an upward trend. Yes, there may be a few fluctuations around the mean, a few ups and downs, but basically an upward trend until you reach the summit. And that's retirement. You stay there as long as possible. It's the American dream. And they've exported that dream all over the world. Let's not despise them for it. Let's just be honest. We love the American dream. 
They just do it better than anybody else. What is the American dream? Get what you can, can what you get, sit on your can. Get what you can, can what you get, get what you can, and can what you get. That's the upward part of the, tri- of the trend, right? That's the upward slope of the curve. Sit on your can, that's retirement. We love it. Even if we don't really think about it, that's the shape of life most of us are hoping for and expecting. And it's not as though Christians are immune to any of this. That is the basic shape we're hoping for. If we're honest, this is often how we see God's job. See, God's job is to help us achieve this shape, right? He's there to help you get up the curve as fast as possible and then to stay on the summit as long as possible and then heaven afterwards. For those of us who are joining us uh, for the first time this morning, I think I've seen a few visitors here this morning. You're joining us right at the end of a series on Job. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to compare that model to Job's life. So it's the punchline. Uh, I'm sorry you've joined us for the punchline, but I think there's still something for you if you are joining us for the first time this morning. We're going to compare this model to the shape of Job's life. We've now read right to the very end of the book, and the shape is clear. Job's life is a big V with an exaggerated upside, more like a Nike swish than the thing that we have in our hearts and minds. The first part of his life is familiar to us. The story starts, he's a man of enormous blessing, described as the greatest man in the East. But then he's confronted by the Satan and his life plummets to extraordinary depths of suffering and curse. And throughout this great fall, he trusts God. That's the extraordinary thing, isn't it? He trusts God. That much we know. Then, chapter 42. Haley read it for us this morning. Job repents. That's the part she didn't read. And he's vindicated. He has spoken of the Lord what is right, unlike his foolish friends. The Lord says it twice. Verse 7, verse 8. Job has spoken what is right. Not only is Job vindicated, But he's also appointed as a priest for his foolish friends. They are invited back to the Lord on the basis of his sacrifice. A sacrifice offered by this righteous sufferer. That's verse 8. Check it there with me. And then look at verse 10. Job has his fortunes restored. There's family. There's friends, true friends. There's feasting. There's comfort, financial help. Where Job was isolated and destitute, now he is surrounded by love and support. And then in verse 12, the Lord doubles his blessing. So the number of sheep and camels and oxen and donkeys is exactly double what he had when he was the greatest man in the East. It's double. So this is not restoration. This is extravagant blessing upon blessing upon blessing. Job goes on to have a full family, verse 13, and to live a long and happy life, verse 17. And just in case we are tempted to think like Job's foolish friends were, that he deserved what he got, either the bad or the good, the chapter, this final concluding chapter makes it crystal clear. Verse 11, the Lord brought the evil. Verse 12, the Lord brought the blessing. The Lord is sovereign 
over the shape of Job's life. And it's not a straight line to victory, the one that we imagine. It's more like a Nike swish. Nike actually means victory, and I think it's a useful symbol that captures the shape of victory in the Bible. So once you acknowledge it, once you see it, you begin to see it everywhere. It starts with Adam. Here is God's king in God's royal garden until he falls, until he's confronted by the Satan, forced to live outside under the curse with his broken family. Even so, by the end of his life, he is blessed with longevity and a full family. You can read about that in Genesis 4 and 5. What about the classic example, Joseph? Let's think about the shape of his life. He starts out in a position of high honor as his father's favorite. But like Cain, his brothers are jealous. They throw him down into a hole in the desert. He's sold into slavery down in Egypt. I'm using the language of the story itself, where he's falsely accused of rape, and then he falls further down into a prison cell. But the Lord was with him. And at just the right time, the Lord exalted Joseph to the highest office in the land. It's not restoration. It's extravagant blessing upon blessing upon blessing. Family, wealth, longevity, beyond his and our wildest imaginings. We see the same shape in the life of Israel under Moses. Blessed on the heights of Mount Sinai, they fall to wander and die in the wilderness. Only to rise again and live in the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Same shape in the life of Israel after Moses. Israel under Solomon, living like kings in the promised land. But they fall off their thrones. They are dragged like slaves into exile. And yet they rise again because the Lord refuses to leave them in exile. He vindicates them. He brings them home. Do you see the shape? And once you begin to see it, you begin to see it everywhere. Think about the life of Jacob, Samson, Ruth, Naaman, Esther. Their lives all take the same basic shape. These are lives shaped by the grace of God. He blesses his people, the world, the flesh, our own flesh, and the Satan conspire so that they lose that blessing, suffer for it. But God is so determined to love these people that he wins them back by heaping blessing upon blessing upon blessing. So that the second blessing is double the first. That is the shape of life, of the life of the believer in the Bible. It should come as no surprise to us then that the fulfillment of this pattern looks like this. Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see the shape? Jesus was the perfect man of faith. And so in him we see with perfect clarity what the shape of the life of faith looks like. What shape the life of faith will take. Every other life of faith in the Bible is a second-hand replica preparing us for the real thing which we see in our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus descended from the infinite heights of blessing to the poverty of this earth. He spoke of the Lord what was right, unlike his foolish friends. We killed him for it. But not only was he vindicated, in his death and resurrection, he was appointed as a priest for his foolish friends. And we are invited back to the Lord on the basis of his sacrifice. A sacrifice offered by a righteous sufferer. And now he is exalted at the right hand of God Almighty. Are you hearing the echoes of Job? I hope so. What's the shape? It's not a straight line graph to victory, to success. The one that we have burned into our hearts and our minds. No, before victory comes deep defeat. Humiliation comes before exaltation. Death comes before resurrection. The cross comes before glory. That's the shape of Job's life. That's the shape of Jesus' life. And to the extent that we are faithful followers of Jesus, it'll be the shape of our life. So what can we expect? Our lives in Christ will look something like this. Blessings in the past. Glory in the future. And in the present, perseverance. Blessings in the past. Glory in the future. And perseverance in the present. We start with past blessing. We have to be blind fools not to see that, that which God has given us. Life. Breath. Every single moment of joy that you have ever experienced is a gift from him. Just a little taste, a little sample of his goodness. A reminder that he delights to give good gifts to his children. And all of that abundance is actually for everyone. Even the most hardened atheist enjoys the blessings of the Lord because he makes it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. All of that doesn't even come close to beginning to count the blessings that we enjoy in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And you can read the rest of Ephesians 1 for the whole catalog, the whole list of blessings that we enjoy in Christ. I encourage you to do that. Because of God's past grace in creating and then redeeming us, we are blessed beyond our capacity to understand. 
Now that's past blessing. Past, not in the sense that we no longer enjoy those blessings, past in the sense that God has acted in the past to secure them for us and we enjoy them forevermore. Past blessings. Future glory. Future glory is really about God and our participation in His glory. Now, when we first hear that, it doesn't sound all that exciting. I mean, let's be honest. God's glory is not something that generally gets us excited. The other day, a little boy asked me, he said, In heaven, do we have to go to church all the time? I mean, we have exactly the same question. The difference is kids say what they think. For a lot of us, God's glory is like a gathering of ghosts in a stone chapel with stained glass windows. It's cold in there, and there's a granny on the organ. Let's be honest, that's our picture of future glory. No wonder we cling to this world. What we need to see is that we don't actually have to choose between our blessing and God's glory. They move in the same direction. They are bound up in each other. Listen to Christopher Ash. He's so clear on this. Ultimately, the blessing of the universe depends on the glory of God. A universe in which God is not glorified is a universe at odds with itself. A self-contradictory universe. Ultimately, the blessing of Job depends on the glory of God. The sufferings of Job are necessary for the final blessings of Job. I hope you heard what he was saying. Your ultimate well-being, your ultimate good depends on the glory of God. Your blessing depends on the glory of God. On his perfect character, his goodness, his grace, his love being made manifest in your life. The deeper you enter into relationship with God in his glory, the more blessed you will be. On that last day, you will be infinitely blessed because you will experience the infinite glory of God face to face. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. God wills our good, and our good is to love him. And to love him, we must know him. And if we know him, we shall in fact fall on our faces. What waits for us is a future in which we value God for God perfectly. A future when we see things as they truly are. A future when we know that worshipping God is not just a duty. It's our deepest desire. It is the good life, the abundant life, the blessed life to worship God. And it will be physical. Job 42 is a picture, it's not an allegory, it's a picture of life with God. Endless material blessing. But here's the thing about future glory. Endless material blessing, 
but none of those blessings will compete for your worship. Right? Your worship will be entirely orientated to the God who gives those blessings. Every single one of those blessings will be declaring the glory of God. They won't be competing for his glory. Do you see the difference? The point is this. God's glory waits for us. There is no higher blessing than that, than to be in the presence of God Almighty. So for those of us who are using God to chase the blessings of this world, using him as a means to an end rather than an end in himself, the problem is not that we want too much. The problem is that we want too little. We are not aiming too high. We're aiming too low. We want so much less than God insists on giving us because he insists on giving us himself. That's past blessing and future glory. In between these two, for a fraction of a moment of a splinter of time, we're in the present. This present life. And this present life is one of perseverance. Job only, just think about this with me. Those who have been on the journey through Job for the past few months. Job only sees the Lord in chapter 42 verse 5. The book ends in verse 17. Before that he's living by faith. And his life of faith is one of perseverance. For at least 38 of the 42 chapters, Job does nothing but persevere. The life of faith for the New Testament believer is much the same. It takes the same shape at least, if not the same intensity. So when James writes his epistle, centuries later, it's a New Testament epistle, what does he commend Job for? He commends him for his perseverance. The life of faith today is still one of perseverance. Faith and perseverance are bound up in each other. J.R. Tolkien says it like this. Faithless, faithless is he that says farewell when the road darkens. You see, when the road darkens, you have to keep going. That's your expression of faith. And if there's no perseverance, well, then there's no faith. Faith is perseverance. Spurgeon said this, The difficulty for the Christian is seldom in starting the work. The true labor lies in perseverance, which alone can win the victory. As we reflect on past blessings in Christ and look forward to future glory with God that will be ours in Christ, we are called to persevere in the present in Christ, just like Job. So then the question comes, the obvious question. What does it take to persevere? How are we going to do it? How are we going to keep going in the face? Or at least let's ask this question, the prior question. How did Job do it? How did he keep going in the face of such incredible chaos and pain and suffering and struggle? And then ask the question, how are we going to do it? What do we need? I see at least six things. This is by no means an exhaustive list, but hopefully it's a start. 
Six things we need to persevere. True wisdom. True friends. True prayer. Deliberate intent. Divine power. And thankful joy. True wisdom, true friends, true prayer, deliberate intent, divine power, thankful joy. First, true wisdom. This is the main point in Job. It is a wisdom book. It is a book about what constitutes true wisdom. It's the heart of Job's search. Do you remember back to chapter 28? The great treasure he was mining for was true wisdom. At the end of the book, Job declares the wisdom of Job's friends to be folly, whereas Job has spoken what is right. The friends are foolish because they say, you can always know why things have happened and what's going to happen. You can read God's will off of your circumstances. The Lord says that is folly. That is foolish. And he declares Job to be wise. Because why? Because Job acknowledges the things that he cannot know. The things he cannot understand. The things too wonderful for him. And yet he does know this. Look at chapter 42 verse 2. He's addressing the Lord. He says, I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. True wisdom acknowledges that there is very little that we can know. But we can know that God is good. That his purposes are good. And that nothing is going to keep him from achieving those purposes. What are these purposes? What is the plan, the grand plan? Well, he's told us in no uncertain terms in his word. He is putting all things under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. All things. He is making us like Jesus. As we live under Jesus. One day we will be with Jesus in all his glory and we will rule the whole universe under the eternal blessing of God. That's the plan. True wisdom is knowing that's the plan and that God will use all things, including the suffering and chaos and struggle of this life, to make that happen. Now, how does that help you to persevere? Turn with me to Romans 5. Folks, we are going to be dancing around the New Testament quite a bit to get our heads around this. There's so much there to help us persevere. So Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Past blessing. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Future glory. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope. Because of God's wisdom, because of God's plan, because of the certainty of past blessing and the full assurance of future glory, in the present we have the power not just to endure suffering, but to actually rejoice in it. How is that possible? How is that possible? 
We can endure suffering. We can even rejoice in it because we know it is never wasted. Never empty or vain or meaningless. We know it is for our good ultimately. Perseverance produces character, character, hope. And hope will see us home. God uses all things to bring about his plan. That is true wisdom. And we are going to need it if we are going to persevere in this life. See, God hasn't given us a detailed roadmap. He's given us something more like a compass, right? So when we are blown off course by the headwinds of this life, we still know which way is true north. And true north is true wisdom. All things under the lordship of Christ. True wisdom, that's how we persevere. True friends, true friends, something Job didn't have. I was going through a a, a tough time lately in ministry, and a friend of mine, a pastor in Ghana, he called me up uh, to encourage me, and it really wasn't what I expected. You know, I was expected, you know, hang in there, this is also going to pass, keep going, don't worry, it'll be okay, none of that. He just gave it to me straight. He said to me, you need to be willing to suffer for the gospel, you know? It was so refreshing. Do you see what he did? All he did was give me true wisdom. Remind me of God's plan. Suffering now, glory later. It was so much better than platitudes. He was a true friend. He was speaking the truth in love. Now sadly, that's not how our culture, how friendship in our culture works. Not at all. In our culture, if you and I are friends, we have a kind of an unwritten contract. It says, I will affirm you in everything you do as long as you do the same for me. Friendship in our culture is two people telling each other what they want to hear. So you can be having an adulterous affair, and I say, listen, if this makes you happy, then I'm happy. I just want you to be happy. Right? You recognize it? That is not true friendship. Neither is the self-righteous criticism that Job's friends brought. True friendship holds truth and love together. True friends will remind you of true wisdom. They will constantly point you to God and his plan. Why will they do that? Because that is the most loving thing they can do. True wisdom, true friends, true prayer. True prayer is constant and it's not always politically correct. It is constant because it is motivated by the deepest sense of dependence. My friends, if we recognize how truly desperate we are, how truly dependent we are, if we see things as they actually are, we would be praying all the time. And that's what we see in Job. This man is literally stripped naked. He has all his props kicked out from underneath him. If he's not answering his foolish friends, what is he doing? He is crying out to the Lord in prayer. And not all of it is pretty. Let me just quote some of it. This is, what, this is Job addressing the Lord. Stop frightening me with your terrors. You have worn me out. Tell me what charges you have against me. Show me my offense. 
Now, I'm not sure we would put Job on the prayer roster at CCM. His prayers are not exactly the tidy, orthodox devotionals we expect from mature Christians. And in the end, he actually has to repent of much of what he says about the Lord. But you remember to last time, he was a man of integrity. He prayed what was on the inside, and that's what God wanted. That's what brought him to the place where he could repent. God doesn't want your orthodoxy. He doesn't want it. He wants your heart. Because he actually already knows what's going on in there. True prayer is a constant outpouring of honesty and a constant expression of dependence. And we need it if we are going to persevere. There is no other way. We also need deliberate intent. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, please, if you will. We need deliberate intent. I'll read it. You can catch up when you get there. 2 Peter chapter 1 from verse 5. Make every effort. Those are the words we need to hear. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with perseverance. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, if we are going to persevere, we need to make every effort. You don't drift into perseverance. It takes deliberate intent. You have to fight for it. You have to contend for it. It is by its nature, by its very nature, it is a struggle. It's a struggle. We see it in Job. He struggled, he contended, he fought, he chased after God for God. That's perseverance. Now thankfully, you and I are not Job. We don't have to do it alone, like he did. Peter is talking to the church, he's writing to the church. That instruction to make every effort is in the plural. When your life is chaos and you can't think clearly You have to deliberately lean on your true friends so that they can give you what you truly need, which is true wisdom. God's plan. God's character. The one thing you cannot see because you are hemmed in by your pain is the big picture. But true friends can. You need to let them in. And because we tend to suffer at different times, You need to be deliberate about being a true friend to others in their suffering so that we can constantly be bearing each other's burdens. C.S. Lewis, Clive Lewis, had a brother. His name was Warren. Warren was an alcoholic, um, and there was one stage in which he was admitted to hospital, and, and Clive was going through torment, watching his brother just deteriorate in this way. So he writes a letter to his friend Arthur Greaves, and this is what he writes. Don't imagine I doubt for a moment that what God sends us must be sent in love and will be for the best. My mind doesn't waver on this point. My feelings sometimes do. That's why it does me good to hear what I believe repeated 
in your voice. It being the rule of the universe that others can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Do you hear that? That's why it does me good to hear what I believe repeated in your voice. It being the rule of the universe that we... Let me not butcher it. It being the rule of the universe that others can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Now, of course, for this to work, you have to have true friends. You can't wait for the crisis and then look around for a friend. You need to be deliberate now in cultivating friendships. And this, just an aside quickly, it's a hobby horse, but I have to jump on it. This is why consumer Christianity doesn't work. You need to be part of the family. You have to be in a life group. You have to be here with us, if you can be here with us, on a Sunday morning. That's a sermon for another time. Perseverance is an act of the will. It's a fight. Thankfully, we don't fight it alone. Deliberate intent is followed by divine power. In fact, it is preceded by divine power, undergirded by divine power, completely saturated by divine power. Our will is completely surrounded by God's will. Just like the life of Job. Listen to verses 3 and 4. If you still have 2 Peter 1 open, so just before the passage I read, verses 3 and 4, we picked it up in verse 5. Here's verses 3 and 4. I'm going to paraphrase. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature. Therefore, make every effort to persevere. God's divine power Make every effort in God's divine power, not independently from God's divine power. The power to make every effort and persevere comes from God, not from you, not from me. His divine power, look at verse 3, has granted us all things, past blessing, and called us to his own glory, future glory, so that in the present, by the same power, we might become like him, like, like who? Like Jesus, And persevere. God's kindness to us in Christ, past, present, and future, and especially in Christ's own perseverance, is what is going to help us to persevere. This is not grit your teeth and bear it. This is fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and trust that he has done everything, past, present, and future, To get you home. Finally, you've been waiting for that word. Finally, joyful thanksgiving. Go to Colossians 1. Please go. This this passage is important, really helpful. Colossians 1. We pick it up in verse 9. Just listen, think about the themes we've been exploring and just listen to these words. And so. From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, 
so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for what? For all perseverance and patience, with what? With joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. I mean, this is a heck of a passage. It basically sums up everything we've been saying. Here are true friends offering up true prayer, that's verse 9, for the Colossians so that they will understand true wisdom, verse 9, so that they can exercise deliberate intent, verse 10, as they are strengthened by divine power, verse 11, for the purpose of perseverance, verse 12, with joyful thanksgiving. Verse 11 and 12. What role does this thankful joy or this joyful thanksgiving play in perseverance? Why do you need it? Well, your joy, your capacity for thanksgiving in the midst of trial acts like a barometer. It's a bit like a dashboard. Your joy, your thanksgiving are going to tell you how well you are persevering. So let's take Job, for instance. We don't seem to see any thankful joy in him as he suffers. Now, why is that? Well, let's, let's just work through the things we've been considering. It's not because he's not being upheld by divine power. He certainly is being upheld by divine power. There's also no doubt about his intent. He is committed to the struggle. The whole book is a record of his honest, relentless prayer life. So it's not that. So what then is the problem? No true friends, no true wisdom. At least not until the very end. Job persevered, but it was a joyless perseverance. He persevered without joy or thanksgiving because he had no one to comfort him with the eternal truth of God's good plans. Instead, his friends just poured shame and guilt into his open wounds. Thanksgiving and joy are like your fuel light and your oil light. They are going to tell you when something is missing. Perhaps you are not taking your struggle to the Lord in prayer. Perhaps you won't let your friends come in and comfort you. Perhaps you're trying to do it in your own strength rather than entrusting your weakness to God's strength. When you are drained of all joy and thanksgiving, it doesn't mean that the Lord has left you. Not for one second. It just means you're not accessing everything he's giving you, all the resources he's giving you to help you persevere. In this life, we are called to persevere. We do that by trusting in God's good plan, surrounding ourselves with friends who will remind us of that plan, praying our hearts out, making every effort to keep going, but depending entirely on others and the power of God himself for any hope of success, and doing it all with joy and thanksgiving. And how can we possibly have joy and thanksgiving in our hearts? We've come the full circle. We can have joy and thanksgiving because behind us, We already have every blessing in Christ.
and in front of us, all that waits for us is the glory of God. That's how we persevere. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for every blessing we already have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that nothing but your glory lies ahead of us. Please help us, Lord, to live out life between those two realities, past and future. Help us to persevere in the present. Give us true friends who speak true wisdom into our lives. Help us to be true in prayer. Help us by the power of your spirit to be deliberate, intentional, joyful, and thankful. Help us to persevere to the very end, come what may. And we thank you, Father, for the book of Job. We praise you for taking us through this journey, through Job, these past few months. We praise you for blessing us in so many ways, and especially for time and time again pointing us to our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.